I'm Leanne and I'm joined by Ruhi and we are super excited to have David Saunders from Santander as our guest today. So David, I'm sure most of our listeners know you very, very well, but for the very few who might not, could you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what your role at Santander is? Definitely. Hi. Hi. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, I'm David Saunders at uh, Santander, as Leanne says, based in London. I'm a part of the Securitized Products Group. Uh, mainly focused on arranging capital relief securitizations or, or SRT um, and, and spend quite a bit of time focused on, on regulate, regulatory advocacy efforts as well. Great. And talking of regulatory advocacy efforts, what we were hoping we could pick your brains on today are the new Basel IV output floor. So obviously this has now been delayed a little bit due to be implemented at the beginning of next year. Could you tell us a bit more about this and some of the advocacy that the industry has done um, in the past on, on the topic? Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and thank you for, um, for inviting me on anyway, but particularly to talk about this topic, which is, um, as you say, very, um, very important. I think quite timely, even though there is this, this delay in the implementation. Um, maybe a bit of, bit of background on, on the output floor. So as you say, this is a new rule coming in as, as part of Basel IV. Um, as the regulator themselves have said, it's really aimed at reducing unwarranted variability and increasing comparability of bank capital ratios. I think at high level, it's really looking at uh, bank capital requirements not being lower than, than 72.5% of their uh, equivalent capital requirements under the, the standardised approach. I mean, as you know, there is a phase in there to get to the 72.5%, but that, that's the, the, the final uh, point. Um, and, and it, you know, to be clear, it's, it's focused across all uh, capital elements, so kind of only credit risk, credit market, and, and uh, operational risk capital in there as well. Um, the, the key aim, though, uh, basically, in reading between the lines, is, is making sure that banks aren't taking too much reduction in their capital requirements through the use of um, internal models. Um, in terms of the status, you, you touched on the implementation date there. It, it was fi- finalised by Basel you know, quite a few years ago now. Um, but at the EU level is still to be implemented in, 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 in regulation. And um, we've seen a proposal from the Commission um, last year, which was largely aligned with, with what Basel had to say. And we've recently received an ECB opinion. Um, neither of those change what Basel IV says about the output floor um, at all, um, but it is still going through the, those final negotiations. So that's maybe a little bit on the background, specifically on securitization. Um, th- this is where the, the key issue from, from our perspective is. Um, and the way we look at it is that the output floor simply applies a very, the same simple rule to all asset classes and all, and all structures, not taking any of their specificities into account. And, and somewhat uniquely for securitization, certainly from, from what we've heard, we haven't seen this problem identified elsewhere. But for securitization, it really does pose a significant problem. Um, and I think the, the simplest way to look at it is, is through an example. We're obviously focused on, on SRT uh, securitizations. So if we think about a, a very simple two-tranche uh, structure where you sell the first loss tranche and, and retain the, the senior tranche using SEC IRBA. Um, what the output floor says is you have to take that exact structure, exact portfolio, um, and apply the SEC SA to calculate the risk weight 
uh, on that retained senior tranche, and that's your, your way of getting the standardised equivalent, and then obviously applying the, the 72.5 percentage uh, point to that. Um, this, quite frankly, simply doesn't work. Um, applying the SEC SA methodology to a structure that has been designed with a SEC IRBA in mind um, just, well, as I say, just, just really doesn't work. You end up with a, a risk weight on that senior tranche, multiples of what you had under the SEC IRBA, um, and, and, and a risk weight that is just completely removed from the, the reality of the actual um, underlying risk. Um, <clears throat> we, we often hear people when they're talking about this saying it shouldn't be an issue because the output floor is only applied at the group level. So you don't need to worry about your individual SRT transactions. It's only applied at the group level. However, you know, we're still very concerned about this because even if it is only applied at the group level, if you have a group impact, there will always be a way of allocating that capital down. And when people are looking at the group, the group impact of the output floor, they're going to be trying to understand where it's coming from. And SRT is going to be one of the biggest drivers of that. So eventually there will be allocations down to businesses, down to individual transactions. And that, that, that's really what we're, um, what we're concerned about. So where you have that significantly increased impact on securitization out of line with what you're seeing in other asset classes and structures, we think it poses a significant problem. Um, and we ourselves have already seen the JST starting to ask questions about individual transactions. How does the output floor impact this on the underlying assets or on the individual structure? So this is going to come at, at a transaction by transaction level, it really is. Um, and ultimately, the concern is it's going to make SRT no longer a viable option for uh, sharing risk and, and, and managing capital, which you know, I think we'd all agree is, is not, not the aim of the output floor at all. No, absolutely. And what a shame after there have been so many other obstacles along the way with SRT that we've managed to to overcome. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And look, you know, we're, we're you mentioned the advocacy efforts that there's quite a bit going on, the industry via you know, AFME, IACPM, et cetera, the banks, law firms, et cetera, heavily involved in that. Um, and the way we, we think about this is that this is ultimately just a mistake in the drafting. That's the way we look at this. This is the output or the impacts are not the purpose of the output floor. And we, we genuinely think it's a mistake in the drafting. And what we are trying through these advocacy efforts to make the regulators or supervisors understand is, is, is really three points in the way we look at this. Um, one, this idea that if you were structuring a securitization transaction to work under the SEC SA, the standardized approach in the first place, you would fundamentally structure it differently than you would under the SEC IRBA. That's just not the same for any other asset class. If I'm structuring a project finance loan, um, whether I use SEC, um, sorry, whether I use the IRB or the standardised risk weights on that loan, I'm going to structure it the same way. Ultimately, it will just be my returns that are affected. Um, that's just not the same for for, for, for securitisation. Um, secondly, they're they're saying the SEC SA is just a standardised version, uh, similar to the the standardised approach for credit risk. We we don't think the SEC SA and the standardised approach are actually really equivalent. The standardised approach uh, for you know, the underlying assets has been around since 2004. Um, the SEC SA only came in into force in, in 2019 and really to solve specific problems around the securitization market at the time, particularly the, the over-reliance on external ratings. So they're not really equivalent, which is what the output floor is saying. Um, and then finally, the SEC SA, um, by using that, it actually implies a double conservatism. So if you're applying a standardized approach to a loan, you have that one layer of conservatism in your risk weight. When you apply the SEC SA, where you have the regulatory defined SEC-SA formula, which is, is highly conservative in itself. And then you put into that formula regulatory defined standardized inputs, which are conservative. So you have that double layer of conservatism, which again, 
we don't think it's fair. We don't think it's reasonable. And, and, and ultimately, it's just a, just a mistake. OK, and then um, David, welcome from me as well on Tranchop. Um, and to take that a bit further, so as part of the regulatory advocacy efforts that are going in, uh, is it correct that there are tests that are being run across the industry? And are they all landing in the same position as you? Yeah, absolutely. I've spoken to a few different banks on this, and, and, and they're all saying exactly the same thing. Um, and actually, yeah, we have shared some numbers that we've run with with other other banks, and, and, and we know that, that they're getting similar uh, um, similar impacts. It's, I mean, this is the biggest concern I think in, in the industry from a securitization regulatory perspective at the moment. Um, as an example, I mean, we we basically took some uh, four real world transactions across uh, different asset classes weren't trying to cherry pick specific ones, just existing transactions in those asset classes we had. And we ran the output floor impact on the underlying assets to see you know, what was the impact on the amount of capital to hold um, and compared that against the impact on the retained senior tranche in, a, in, a, uh, in the SRT transaction that we were uh, looking at. And this was all under the 72.5% you know, uh, all-in uh, 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 rate. And as some examples, you just see significant, significant increase in the amount of capital held on the senior tranche versus the underlying loan. And um, you don't forget, obviously, in the senior tranche, you've, you've got even lower risk, right? You, you've got your credit enhancement, you've got structural features that are protecting you within the securitization, as opposed to holding the, the, the loan outright. Um, to put some numbers in it, for a corporate transaction, you saw about a 9% increase in capital on the underlying assets versus a 43% increase on the senior tranche. Uh, project finance was six percent versus forty-six percent. That's quite substantial, isn't it? Extremely, extremely substantial. Um, and, and maybe SME is always the regulator's favourite asset class. You actually get, again, depending on on the multipliers you have in there, but you can get uh, to a place where you actually zero percent impact on the underlying assets versus sixteen percent impact on that retained senior tranche. So they're just not comparable. And again, you, that risk on the senior tranche is actually lower. Yet you've got this this much larger impact. Okay, so you have the data, you have this concerted effort that's going in, and you have, from what you say, the regulators on board. Um, so what, what is going to be the next step then? Is there a solution? So there's certainly a solution. And, and uh, yeah, you say we've got the regulators on board. I, I hope so. Um, I say we, you know, ourselves uh, included, spent some time with the European Commission trying to explain this problem to them. And then we saw the final proposal from the Commission that changed nothing. So <laughs> that, that, that didn't work. Um, we are trying with the, the council and the parliament now as it, as it goes through the, the trial process. We just hope that we ad adequately explain it. Um, and and you know, to touch on this word again, you know, this isn't us complaining about increased capital. We genuinely think it's a mistake. I've said to regulators and supervisors, you know, we missed this. We as an industry missed this as well when the rules came out uh, th three or four years ago. Uh, so it's just a mistake. Everybody's missed it, but we've got plenty of time to fix it. So hopefully we can get there. Um, in terms of solutions... Uh, We've discussed a few internally and as an industry, and there's a few different ones out there. But I think the, the simplest one that the most people have settled on, and I think there's some interest from the regulator on this as well, but is to, and, and quote unquote, fix the, the SEC essay. If you make the SEC essay a more uh, reasonable, less significantly conservative approach, um, then we think when you're applying that as part of the output floor, the output floor impact is going to be much less significant and more aligned with the risk. And again, we took those earlier examples that we had, um, ran scenarios where we reduced the P factor in half. So P factor currently one for non-STS, 0.5 for STS. 
cut that in half to 0.5 or 0.25. And actually, and, and it's not, not by design, but you get to a stage where the impact on your senior tranche is in line with the impact on the underlying assets in, in all of the scenarios we ran, which we think is, is fair and reasonable. Again, you could argue it should be lower because it's a senior tranche, but at least it's in line with where you're seeing on the underlying assets. So we think a, a, a halving of that P factor is, 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 the, is the best approach. Um, other banks are aligned with, with that as well. Um, it's worth noting that that brings us in line with the US implementation of, of, of the same approach. They already have a 0.5 P factor under, under their equivalent methodology. So we're not, you know, we're not asking for, 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 for too much here, we don't think. Um, and, um, and again, you, the, the, the main purpose of this P factor is, as it, it has been explained by the regulator, and if you go back to a, you know, a number of the consultation papers early in, in, in the last decade, um, they talk about these model and agency risk within securitization coming out of the, the crisis. And this P factor was you know, non-neutrality element of the P factor brought in and really to cover those risks. Well, if you look at where we are now in, in, in 2022, I mean, again, I don't think we were really aligned that the model and agency risks were as significant as the regulators and supervisors thought, but they're certainly lower now. So if the P factor should have been one a, a decade ago, I think it, it's reasonable to assume it that it, it should at least be considered to be lowered now. You look at ESMA templates, you look at the SDS framework, uh, the trim exercises on the underlying portfolios, et cetera. I just don't think you can argue that model and agency risk is the same as it used to be. So there's a, there's a good argument for, for reducing the P factor anyway, uh, or multiple arguments. And again, it, 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 it's the easiest and simplest solution for the output flow. Okay. I think that sounds quite optimistic and hopefully we hear some significant developments on that this year. Hopefully. So good luck to you in your efforts. <laughs> yeah, thanks, David. That's it's really great to get the opportunity to hear your thoughts in a bit more detail. And I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate that as well. You will know that we always like to round off our podcast with a personal question so our listeners can get to know you a bit better. Now, I know you're a huge coffee lover. So tell us, where is the best place in London to get a decent coffee? I hear it's not Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Good question, yes. Uh, indeed, I have tried quite quite a few of the places across London. Um, where would I say it? Well, so, actually, I just found out there's a new caravan opened up just down the road from from our office, which is, which is nice. Our old best coffee shop in the area hasn't reopened post-COVID, unfortunately. So um, there's a caravan open, which is nice. Um, I do, I do like the workshop coffees. Uh, there's a couple of them dotted around the city. One just behind Oxford Street. Um, that, 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 that's very nice. Um, maybe a local shout out as well. Uh, uh, Wanderlust Eatery in Hither Green, if anybody's in the area, does excellent coffee and excellent cakes as well. Okay, I like cakes. I mean, I love coffee too. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, David. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here today. Yes. Thank you very much for being here. And, you know, for our listeners, David Saunders is in the house because he was quite excited about actually coming in. But yeah, it's really great to see you in person. And um, for our listeners, we'll see you again in a few weeks. Until then, as you know, keep it tranching.